Hi, I'm Rochelle Young. And I'm Sam Tracy. And you're listening to Season 2 of This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy, including news, science, health, and history. This show is an all-volunteer project by students and alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, an awesome organization working to end the war on drugs. Every week on This Week in Drugs, we hope to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy. And hopefully have some fun while we're at it. We neither condemn nor condone drug use. Rather, we envision a world in which our attitudes and laws surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. As always, we'll start things off with a discussion of the biggest drug news from the last week, a couple of quick headlines, and then a forecast of some cool events for the weeks ahead. Then it's time for the first installment of June's Drug of the Month, where Rochelle will give an introduction to ayahuasca. Finally, we'll be talking to Amanda Ryman, the Marijuana Law and Policy Manager for the Drug Policy Alliance, about Oakland, California's new equity permit program that's seeking to right some of the wrongs of the war on drugs. And of course, we'll wrap it all up with our calls to action, because while learning about drugs is a lot of fun, none of it matters if we're not using that knowledge to make our communities and the world a better place. So thanks for joining us for episode 47 of This Week in Drugs, and we hope you enjoy the show. Now it's time for our weekly news and forecast where we talk about some of the biggest drug news stories from the last week and talk about some other stuff that's coming up soon. So Rochelle, want to start us off with our first story? Yeah, to start this week's news off on a really like terrifying and grim note, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> police mm-hmm. officers in the country of the Philippines have been encouraged to engage in the killing of alleged drug traffickers without any arrest or due process in exchange for bounties. And law enforcement in Cebu, the country's second largest city, have actually won the first award uh, reward already. The mayor-elect of the city, Tomas Asmina, announced on Facebook this week that he had awarded cops in his jurisdiction with 155,000 Filipino pesos, or about 3,350 U.S. dollars, for murdering three men alleged to be major drug traffickers in the region. In Osmina's Facebook announcement, he went on to taunt the country's constitutionally mandated Commission on Human Rights for investigating circumstances surrounding the May 28th killings, writing, quote, CHR, as in Commission on Human Rights, CHR equals criminals have rights, um, which I don't know anything about Filipino constitutional law, but I think that criminals should have rights anyway. Um, But these bounties have apparently been spurred by the recent election of um, Roberto Duterte, um, who won his, uh, who's the president-elect, he's not president yet, but he won his election earlier last month in a landslide after promising to wipe out crime in the Philippines by killing tens of thousands of criminals. Neither Osmina, the mayor who has given out the bounty, or Duterte officially take office until the end of the month, but... Duterte did urge security forces this week to begin to begin the literal war on crime immediately, saying he would pay up to 3 million pesos or about $60,000 USD for the death of um, like the highest ranked drug lords with lower amounts for the execution of lower ranking traffickers. Police have confirmed in the country um, that they've killed at least 15 drug suspects since May 24th. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- this story, I mean, I remember reading this headline and having to go back and confirm that this was an actual publication and not, I don't know, some sort of The Onion type satire that I hadn't heard of before. And nope, it's completely real. This is actually happening. This is actually reported in one of the largest publications out of Singapore. And uh, it's a terrifying thing of we, we think of the lawlessness that we have here in terms of, uh, you know, SWAT teams being used for uh, just like serving warrants and police shooting dogs and that sort of thing but it really pales in comparison to politicians literally giving cash rewards for killing people without a trial yeah i mean it's really difficult for me i mean i didn't know what terminology to use in writing this story because i have a really hard time calling um the officers who are engaging in these killings 
either law enforcement or security forces, mm-hmm. which is what um, you know the politicians in the story refer to them as, because it doesn't seem like they're really enforcing any specific law or increasing security for the people mm-hmm. um, in those places. Um, it also this the the article that we read um, also you know talks about fears of this increasing extra extrajudicial ju- extra ju- killings, which means like outside. Um, outside of the law, mm-hmm. but if it's officially mandated, then it's not. These aren't even really extrajudicial. It's not like, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like vigilantes. Mm-hmm. It's not like vigilantes, like going out of their way to try and take the law into their own hands. This is like elected officials telling law enforcement officers to go do this yeah without without arrest without confirming like there's no confirmation that any of these people who have been killed mm-hmm. um really were engaging in any level of drug trafficking and even if they were this is not how you know as a moral civil society we want to deal with people who are breaking laws yeah yeah i mean it's such a terrifying thing and i i honestly don't know a lot about the philippines and their local politics or or, or their cultural clashes but i can't imagine that this isn't just going to also be used for uh police officers or other people in power being able to essentially carry out these killings kind of like a witch hunt you know against people that they don't like uh like just neighbors and that kind of political opponents yeah Yeah. and 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 those sorts of uh random people who aren't even affiliated with the drug trade whatsoever and i I can't imagine this going well yeah um for people who watch john oliver they may actually remember a recent segment that he did about duterte um which is the president-elect who spurred these killings where oliver calls him the trump of the east Mm. and apparently in that segment when prior to running for president, Duterte was the mayor of his town and extrajudicial extra death squads killed over a thousand people and Duterte admitted to having blood on his hands. That's terrifying. And it sounds like he was yeah. probably proud of it in that situation. Yeah, definitely. This was one of the main pieces of his uh, presidential campaign. Mm-hmm. Well, luckily, moving on into our next story is one that is also depressing, but at least has a little bit of hope to it. Um, And this one is that a new study by two economists, one from Universidad de los Andes in Colombia and one from MIT in the United States, they found that America's coca eradication programs in South America, specifically uh, Plan Colombia, had very little return for their massive cost. And the study, which was titled The Economics of the War on Illegal Drug Production and Trafficking, and was published in the Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization, it calculated the cost of taking one kilogram of cocaine off the U.S. market through various strategies. An aerial spraying in which planes dump tons of herbicide onto coca fields in order to kill the crops, this was the most expensive method, costing U.S. taxpayers $940,000 per kilogram taken off the street. And oh, interdiction wow. efforts in Colombia was the next most expensive, costing $175,000 per kilogram, which is still a lot, but nowhere near 940. And uh, for a comparison, it's a tough number to pin down, uh, but it's a kilogram of cocaine costs roughly $35,000 in the U.S., meaning that these strategies were either five or even 27 times as expensive as simply buying up cocaine off the street, which, (laughs) of course, would have its own problems, but just to demonstrate how expensive this really is. Um, Yeah, it's good. It's good to know what the actual money costs are of these programs and how wasteful they are. I mean, Mm -hmm. the other problem with... uh, um, like unaccounted for costs of the uh, aerial eradication mm-hmm. is that they cost is that they cause so many health problems for the people living nearby too. Right. So there's these unaccounted for costs in um, in other ways, but I <laughs> hopefully this is compelling evidence for both the U.S. and our allies in South America to look at other strategies other than you know this war on drugs method yeah and it is so interesting i mean you mentioned the environmental costs which are so important both both to humans uh getting sprayed with tons of chemicals and also you know these herbicides killing other plants um Mm -hmm. but and and this doesn't even consider those and it's that expensive and it's just so Mm -hmm. interesting because it's it's kind of counterintuitive in a sense because you'd think um, kind of logically that, you know, n- you know, nipping it in the bud. Uh, so getting it at the 
beginning of the supply chain would be the cheapest right. and then it would get more expensive as it goes on but that's actually not true in this case because the, the coca plant itself is such a small portion of the cost of cocaine and so much more of it has to do with the processing the smuggling uh, uh, and so as much this barely has any effect on it in comparison to uh, trying to, to get it before it gets to market, but has already been processed. And uh, yeah, it was just counterintuitive to me. I always assumed that these programs were a bad idea for those other reasons, but maybe uh, cost effective. But it seems that they're nowhere near cost effective, especially in comparison to, to other strategies. Um, so the DEA should just be buying cocaine as much cocaine <laughs> as they can and then hiding it? <laughs> In a certain sense. I mean, it seems like that might be more effective and it would drive up the prices for everyone else by, uh, you know, increasing demand in increasing a certain demand. sense. So who knows? Maybe DEA, you should change your tactics. <laughs> it might be a bit more effective. So moving on to the next story and on a much more positive note, just in time for June or Gay Pride Month, Foria, the cannabis products company behind Weed Lube, is now launching probably the first product developed specifically for the LGBTQ community, or at least marketed directly towards them. But more specifically, the gay male community. Foria Explore, their new product, is a suppository meant to enhance anal sex. Similar to the formula behind Foria Relief, which was a cannabis-infused vaginal suppository to address menstrual discomfort, Foria Explorer combines 60 milligrams of THC and 10 milligrams of CBD into a suppository that releases the compounds throughout the pelvic region, relaxing muscles and relieving pain. So currently, alkyl nitrates, did I pronounce that correctly? Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. known as poppers, are probably the most popular mu muscle relaxant for easing anal intercourse, but they do often come with side effects such as um, headaches, increased heart rate, and occasional fainting. So, Foria Relief is meant, or sorry, Foria Explore is meant to kind of take the place of poppers without those negative side effects. And yeah, this is really interesting too, because uh, I mean, we've discussed poppers before on the show, specifically in the, in the context of the the UK ban on legal highs, and, and those right. poppers were getting swept up in that, um, and people were opposing it there. And so, obviously, uh, it seems that this is probably going to be marketed in the United States in state legal areas, but uh, potentially being able to uh, replace poppers in in uh, the UK as well eventually. Yeah, and of course, these products can be used by heterosexual couples mm -hmm. or even les lesbian couples who are interested in engaging in uh, anal intercourse or anal play. But definitely the marketing was directly towards um, the gay male community who have gay sex disproportionately more mm -hmm. than other communities. Right. Um, but it's, it's very cool that this is like probably the first product marketed t directly towards... Um, the LGBTQ community because they've always been huge supporters of medical cannabis and early supporters of marijuana reform generally. Mm -hmm. um, you know, not just because of uh, many of the morality and coming out of the closet type parallels between our movements, um, but specifically because, um, you know, uh, gay men who were suffering from HIV AIDS um, mm -hmm. in San Francisco were among the loudest uh, advocates to demand cannabis for end of life relief, like early, early on before this even became a national issue. Yeah, that was, uh, as we I think we had talked about a little bit before, about how that was really the main driving force between the, the early, uh, the 1996 Prop 215, and, and that it really was focused on the, the end of life relief there. And it is really interesting, too, just thinking more in terms of the um, the current marijuana market. I remember reading a study, um, don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head, but it was that people who identified as LGBTQ were, I think it was something like two or maybe even three times more likely to be a cannabis user, uh, which I found yeah, really wow. interesting. And I think probably has a lot to do with just, uh, you know, being used to the government criminalizing part of your identity or something harmless that you like right. to do with other people. Um, and being able to overcome that stigma mentally. Yeah. And being affiliated, of course, I mean, this is uh, less the case now, um, but of being in part of one subculture or counterculture kind of allows you uh, more flexibility to, to join other ones too so it seems like there's a really right market here 
Yeah, and as um, the author of this article points out, and he's actually, for full disclosure, a friend of mine from college, but, um, you know, Foria as a company should really be lauded, not just for, um, you know, being <laughs> the first uh, company to put out these sexual wellness or mm -hmm. uh, sexual health products for the cannabis community, but also um, addressing the needs of often marginalized communities. Mm-hmm. And so the my, my next uh, story here is actually on another new study that came out this past week. Uh, this one published in the Journal of the American Medical Association of Psychiatry has found that long-term marijuana use is bad for your gums, but really not much else when it comes to physical harms. And so oh, no. this wasn't... <laughs> And so this was uh, the title of this is a bit of a mouthful, but just want to put it out there. Associations between cannabis use and physical health problems in early midlife, a longitudinal comparison of persistent cannabis versus tobacco users. Uh, so as it says in its title, uh, it's a longitudinal comparison. So that means it studied uh, over a thousand New Zealanders uh, that it followed from birth to middle age to see how various factors affected 12 different aspects of their physical health. And as expected, they found that tobacco users had more gum disease, reduced lung function, more systemic inflammation, and poor metabolic health. And while they did find that marijuana users did also have more gum disease than non-users, this effect was less pronounced than it was with tobacco users, and marijuana use was not at all associated with worse outcomes in those other measures that tobacco was. And also, marijuana was actually a little bit better than non-marijuana users when it came to metabolic health, uh, which confirms some past studies that you may have seen headlines in the past year or so of finding that marijuana users tend to have fewer issues controlling their weight than non-users. Um, this is really interesting. I wonder whether it's just because uh, confirming stereotypes, marijuana users are just like too lazy to floss. Mm -hmm. um, I can't. <laughs> that actually was I... one aspect in the study that it mentioned that marijuana users did have less like dental hygiene than non-users. <laughs> and so it might not be the marijuana itself, but more of like. I don't know if someone gets a little sleepy, they might not brush their teeth before going to bed. Uh, I'm not sure how much if they're able to determine <laughs> which one was more the cause there. That's really interesting. Um, it's so fascinating that um, cannabis use, I mean, this confirms like other studies that we've seen in the past as well, mm -hmm. that cannabis re use really doesn't have the same effects on lung function, especially as tobacco use does, mm -hmm. because that's such a major argument for why uh, cannabis shouldn't be considered medicine in a lot of um you know states where that's still a part of the discussion mm -hmm. yeah and so that is really important and it's also um it is important to note that the study didn't address any measures of mental health um okay. where, where opponents are most vocal um and there have been some studies you know showing uh, effects on IQ and motivation and that sort of thing, some of which are being dispelled now. Uh, but the authors of the study were sure to point out that, hey, we're only looking at the physical side of things, but it really gotcha. does look like it really doesn't affect your physical health that much. Um, and the the headline that came along with this, at least in the, in the Washington Post, was chronic marijuana use is about as bad as for your health as not flossing. And at first <laughs> I was like, oh, this is just some sensationalist headline. But then I read the study and it's like, oh, this is actually pretty accurate as to as to what the study found, and um, and because of that, I mean, it just makes sense. And so, if you are a marijuana user, uh, make sure to floss, and it'll kind of balance that out. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, moving on to our quick hit headlines now. Thursday, activists with Regulate Rhode Island delivered over thirteen hundred signatures to their House Speaker and Senate President demanding a vote on marijuana legalization. Bills currently in the legislature have support of 55% of voters and potentially a majority of lawmakers, but thus far the leadership has refused to bring it to a vote. And MI Legalize, a group that's pushing for a ballot initiative to legalize marijuana for adult use in Michigan, has turned over 354,000 signatures to their Secretary of State. And the state now needs to certify signatures to determine whether they've qualified for the ballot in November, and that process will take about two months. According to the Federal Register, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, known as the FDA, will be hosting a panel this month examining Canada's laws for guidance on re regulating medical marijuana. Some experts believe this may be a sign that the DEA may soon recommend rescheduling cannabis. 
And finally, Canadian members of Parliament voted unanimously to approve a nationwide Good Samaritan law that would give immunity from prosecution for simple drug possession to anyone who calls 911 to report an overdose. This is called Bill C-224, and it will now go to the Standing Committee on Health for Amendments, if any, and then be sent back to the House of Commons for a final vote. Awesome. Moving now on to our weekly forecast. The Minority Cannabis Business Association will be hosting two networking rallies this month. The first is in Portland, Oregon on June 11th, and the second is in Oakland, California on June 22nd. Both will provide minority business owners and professionals in the cannabis industry with information on how to enter the legal market, as well as updates on the regulatory structures in their respective states. The Oregon event also features panels on criminal record expungement and a keynote speech from Congressman Earl Blumenauer, who's not a person of color himself, but who's been a longtime champion of cannabis reform in Congress. These are the first, uh, the first events hosted by the MCBA, and the Oregon event is gonna cost $10 for entry. The Oakland event is $15. Uh, for more details on either of those events, check out our website. All right, and then on Thursday, June 16th, the Brookings Institute will be hosting a live webcast event called Big Marijuana, how corporations and lobbies will shape the legalization landscape. The event is centered around two new papers from the think tank on how business will shape regulation in the new industry and how policymakers should respond, with presentations from the authors and a discussion among them and other experts to follow. You can watch online and join the discussion on the hashtag Big Marijuana, and we'll have a link to the event on our website. And that's all for this week's weekly news and forecast. As always, we have our eye out for the biggest headlines and news from the world of drugs and drug policy, but there's always so much going on that we may miss a thing or two, or we may not get to your favorite story. So if there's anything that you'd like to make sure we bring up or you want to bring to our attention, please feel free to hit us up on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter, or send us an email at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. And now it's time for our drug of the month, where we give you an introduction and the science, history, and recent trends behind a different drug each month. Last month, we explored a class of synthetic lab-developed anti-anxiety pharmaceuticals, known as benzodiazepines. For June, our drug of the month has also helped many of its users with anxiety, but is a completely plant-based brew and has deeply spiritual roots. While its origins and effects remain a mystery to most people, ceremonies and retreats involving its consumption have at least become popular enough to be skewered by satirical website The Onion in a headline reading, Shaman Dreading Another Week of Guiding Tech CEOs to Spiritual Oneness. This month, of course, we'll be discussing ayahuasca. The term ayahuasca is sometimes incorrectly used to refer to the Banisteriopsis capi vine, but ayahuasca is actually a powerfully psychedelic and entheogenic brew made from the capi vine, as well as an admixture such as Psychotria viridis. The psychoactive ingredient in ayahuasca is dimethyltryptamine, or DMT, which actually comes from the viridis or other DMT-containing admixtures, which are brewed with the capi vine. But Brews made from the DMT-containing plants alone remain inactive when ingested orally without the monoamine oxidase inhibitor, or MAOI, from the capi vine, making the capi uh, vine the quintessential ingredient in ayahuasca. The brew is used as a traditional spiritual medicine in ceremonies among the indigenous peoples of Amazonian Peru, many of whom believe their people receive the instructions in its use directly from the plants and plant spirits themselves. Ayahuasca was first described to the Western world in the early 1950s by Harvard ethnobotanist Richard Evan Schultz, a colleague of Albert Hoffman, while conducting botanical fieldwork among indigenous communities in the Amazon rainforest. Tangentially, Schultz was also one of the first Westerners to alert the world about the destruction of the rainforest and disappearance of its native people. The word ayahuasca comes from Quechua, a native language in Peru, with aya meaning soul or spirit, and huasca meaning vine. People who have consumed ayahuasca report having spiritual revelations regarding their purpose on earth and the true nature of the universe, 
as well as deep insight into how to be the best person they possibly can. This is viewed by many as spiritual awakening and what is often described as a, rebirth, as a rebirth. In addition, it is often reported that individuals feel they gain access to higher spiritual dimensions and make contact with various spiritual or extra-dimensional beings who can act as guides or healers. The vomiting or physical purge that often accompanies the experience is considered by many shaman and practitioners to be a primary purpose of drinking ayahuasca as it represents the release of negative energy and emotions built up over the course of one's life. Purging effects may also include nausea, diarrhea, and hot or cold flashes. The ingestion of ayahuasca has also been known to cause significant but temporary emotional and psychological distress. Long-term negative effects are not well known. However, at least three deaths of Western tourists related to the consumption of ayahuasca have reported since 2000. The deaths may have been due to pre-existing heart conditions as ayahuasca may increase pulse rates and blood pressure or interaction with other medicines taken such as antidepressants. The traditional preparation of ayahuasca is chemically straightforward, with shamans macerating sections of the capivine and boiling it with leaves of Psychotria veritas or other DMT-containing plants. In modern Europe and North America, Ayahuasca analogs are often prepared using non-traditional plants, which contain the same or similar alkaloids. For example, seeds of the Syrian rue plant can be used as a substitute for the capivine, and the DMT-rich mimosa hostilis is used in place of chacruna or the veritas. Pharmawaska refers to a pharmaceutical version of ayahuasca that uses a pharmaceutical MAOI instead of a plant. That's all for the first introductory episode on ayahuasca. Next week, Sam will be back with the science behind how the spiritual substance interacts with the body. And now it's time for a roundtable discussion where we bring together some of the brightest minds in drug policy reform to talk about the biggest issues facing us today. And for, today, for today's episode, we'll be discussing the new equity permit program in Oakland, California, with Amanda Ryman, who's the Marijuana Law and Policy Manager of the Drug Policy Alliance and a resident of Oakland. So, Amanda, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. And so we, we could have a really big discussion about why this is necessary, um, because that is obviously incredibly important and a lot of the rest of the country isn't following this sort of thing, uh, which is essentially trying to right the wrongs of the war on drugs, disproportionately targeting certain communities. But I think that our audience is generally pretty savvy and we talk about this a lot on the show. Um, so I think it would be a lot more interesting to kind of start diving into the nitty gritty of this uh, specific ordinance and how it's uh, attempting to right those wrongs, assuming that most of all of our listeners are already on board with the idea that we we need to do something. And so uh, to start things off, Amanda, could you just explain kind of what this ordinance entails? Sure. Um, So as you probably know, Oakland is one of the more proactive cities when it comes to regulating Mm -hmm. cannabis. They were one of the first to jump out after 1996 when we passed Proposition 215 to establish a permitting process for dispensaries within the city. And because of that, they've had a pretty well-run dispensary system now for going on two decades. So, you know, Oakland has kind of been the the one to be out front in some of this regulation. And this is really no different. So the city, you know, looking at not just medical marijuana regulation, but impending legalization of adult use, really started to think about how do we make sure that this new economy, that this new industry is going to benefit not only people in Oakland, but people that have been most impacted by the war on drugs. And as you mentioned, it's becoming increasingly common knowledge amongst people in the United States that we have filled our jails beyond capacity with people for nonviolent drug offenses um, and that the barriers for these individuals coming back and being successful after being released Um, are insurmountable in some cases, which then ends up just adding to the detriment of the communities that are already vulnerable, right? So I think that Mm -hmm. Oakland recognized that the cannabis industry, uh, because there is such a big industry already in Oakland, is the 
way to start to repair some of these harms. And so that's where they came up with this equity program. So basically what it says is that the new licenses that they're going to be giving out in the city, in addition to eight new dispensary licenses, they're also going to be licensing delivery and labs and nurseries and cultivation and manufacturing. And I mean, basically everything under the sun. So then the question really became, who is going to be participating in these new businesses? Um, I sit on the Cannabis Regulatory Commission for the City of Oakland, and we had originally come up with this idea that we would require 50% of employees at dispensaries and other medical cannabis businesses to be individuals who are from Oakland, right? So this was an Mm -hmm. idea of making sure that the business stays in Oakland and that Oaklanders benefit from these jobs. Uh, The Public Safety Committee actually wanted to take this a step further, and um, Councilwoman Brooks, her question became, well, employment is great, but what can we do to foster ownership? That it's not enough just to have jobs, but you really want people to own their own businesses, Uh, which, of course, everyone agreed with. So I think, you know, there was some dissension about what's the right path to get there, but there was definitely a common agreement that this is the right way to go, that we should be thinking about this when we write the regulations. So in the end, how it came down is that uh, 50% of the new licensees have to have someone as a business owner of at least 51% of the business who is an Oakland resident who has resided for at least two years in one of the police beats in Oakland where people are most often targeted for marijuana offenses. Um, And so that was something that they added. um, And then or if they don't live in those beats, it also applies to people who have been previously incarcerated for a marijuana related offense uh, in Oakland. So when it comes down to it, we'll see 50 percent of the new licensees in Oakland have majority ownership by somebody that either lives in an affected area or who has been previously incarcerated from a marijuana offense in Oakland. So you mentioned that one of the motivations for passing this ordinance or supporting this ordinance is because um, we really know the effects of uh, prohibition on marijuana has been, has bolstered mass incarceration. Um, I think that Oakland is a particularly interesting place for this type of ordinance to take hold or to be tried out because of the municipalities in the United States that do have a robust marijuana industry, Oakland is one of the few of them, if not the only one right now, that has a significant um, black population. You know, most of the other jurisdictions in which you think there is a well-established marijuana industry are Colorado, Oregon, uh, Washington, like heavily uh, white populations, and Oakland differs in that way. So I think a lot of people know that this ordinance is intended to be race conscious, even though it doesn't explicitly mention people of color um, in any of its factors. Um, and that does actually allow you know, any residents in those beats or who qualify um, as having been arrested for a marijuana charge um, to receive one of those one of those set aside licenses um was that intended to also include um you know low-income white people who might have been affected by uh the war the war on marijuana well it's not targeted specifically at any ethnicity so anybody that lives in one of those affected areas or who has had an incarceration for cannabis uh, stemming from an arrest in Oakland is eligible. So anyone that, you know, regardless of skin color, is able to take advantage of the program. However, even in a city like Oakland, which is progressive when it comes to a lot of their social justice issues and especially their cannabis issues, still sees racial disparities and we see how the law is enforced. So, for example, the city of Oakland comprises about 25% African Americans in their population, but account for 78% of those who get tickets for marijuana infractions. And so it was this discovery, along with noticing that a majority of these infractions were happening along very specific police beats, that started the conversation of, are this, is this where our folks who are being targeted live? Like, are these the individuals mm-hmm. that we want to offer this opportunity to, regardless of skin color? However, we do know that when it comes to law enforcement targets, people of color are just targeted more often, even if use is similar across uh, ethnicities. 
Of course, there is the caveat that, you know, people with economic vulnerability are also at risk for law enforcement intervention, not necessarily because of the color of their skin, but because they aren't afforded the same privacy as people with money. They're buying their drugs in a more open air environment. They have to buy smaller amounts more often. Their options for consumption a lot of times are more public than people who have money. So I think there's definitely a nexus between the ethnicity and the economy with the people of color living in poor neighborhoods kind of getting the double whammy. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's a, that's a good explanation of how that all works. And I think that approach does make a lot more sense than uh, the inevitably really messy situation of trying to to qualify people based on ethnicity or something like that. And um, I have in California, I just want to mention that in 1996, mm-hmm. we passed Proposition 209, which forbids city and state agencies from making decisions on employment or licensure based on skin color or gender. So it's actually illegal to do that Uh, in the state of California, mm -hmm. because believe me, sometimes we feel like that's almost the easy answer. Like when we were Mm -hmm. drafting the adult use initiative and looking at ways to write in ways for people who have been most impacted to take part in the industry on a state level, you know, Mm -hmm. we would love to say that applications of women or people of color, you know, get bonus points or get priority, but legally we're not allowed to do that. That's really interesting because that was actually going to be one of my questions later on is why you didn't take that route because I know I, I think in Maryland they have bonus points based on being a certified women or minority owned business and I was wondering why that wasn't the approach but that makes a lot more sense. That is why. <laughs> <laughs> and then so back to some uh, uh, the other kind of specific of this uh, of this program and and also to clarify um, so. I, how it gives priority to applicants who've either been uh, convicted of a marijuana-related offense or lived in these areas, that's an or, right? Or is that an and? It's an or. Okay. And so when it comes to the, uh, to the, uh, the conviction side of it then, um, does that apply to all marijuana offenses or only uh, ones for distribution since this is essentially giving out licenses for distribution? Um, the ordinance just says a marijuana-related offense. Okay, interesting. And so also as far as that arrest, and it it had to have taken place in Oakland, is that correct? Correct. It's a result of a conviction arising out of Oakland, California. Mm, So it's almost like we're sorry, (laughs) you know, like we're sorry that, you know, we as a city arrested you and saddled you with this barrier to being successful. We didn't want to do it. We were following orders. Uh, mm -hmm. And now that we don't have to do it, we want to apologize by giving you the first crack at this new industry. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it, because I was going to be asking of of why not to a, uh, say, an Oakland resident who got arrested in San Francisco, why they wouldn't qualify uh, for this sort of thing. But in that perspective, that actually it does make some sense. And um, would the same thing apply for if if someone was, say, a resident of San Francisco? Do you have to be an Oakland resident to get one of these licenses or if I lived in San Fran and I got arrested in Oakland, I would be able to to qualify for this priority. No, the stipulation is that you must be an Oakland resident. Um, If you want to take advantage of the residency of the being in these specific police beats, you had to have resided there for two years prior to when you apply for the Mm -hmm. the, uh, license. Um, And then if you want to use your prior conviction as a priority key, then you have to have had it within the last 10 years. So the reaction overall to this ordinance from within the marijuana movement has been has been generally positive, it seems, um, that this is a step in the right direction, that we're glad these conversations are happening, and that, you know, Oakland is willing to uh, take positive steps towards righting these wrongs from the pre-prohibition era. Um, but the specific ordinance itself has also come under a lot of criticism. Um, including by the commission you sit on, I think a majority of its members were not in favor of this particular ordinance. Um, yeah, I don't. I'm not really sure where that came from. I read oh, that, you're not? but okay. we, yeah, we didn't mm-hmm. meet um, in between when this was suggested by public safety and when the council voted on it because that was only a week. Mm. So the ordinance, uh, the commission actually didn't take any action. Um, or vote or do anything. I mean, some uh, commission members spoke out against it in the meeting, but they were speaking as, you know, individuals, not as the commission itself did not, had not taken a position. 
Okay, thank you for clarifying that because it, I, I was a little bit curious about how it, if you, you know, it, since you're the commission who are the experts on it, I was curious how the ordinance went forward if ostensibly a majority of the commission was opposed. But we do know that there has been criticism that came from groups such as Supernova Women, which is um, a group for women of color in the marijuana industry. Um, can you kind of talk about what some of the concerns are from people who are in favor of this type of action, but maybe not the specific ordinance? Well, I think that it was really the, the requirement that 50% of the businesses include individuals from this pool of applicants. And, you know, I, I think that the concern is warranted. I mean, we're not looking at a prison system that does an excellent job of training people for jobs on the outside in management. Um, you know, we're, we don't see entrepreneurship mm -hmm. programs being offered rampantly throughout our criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. So the idea that we're going to have a pool of individuals who are from these disadvantaged backgrounds who are ready with the capital and knowledge to open a business, I think concerns some in the industry that it's going to slow down the progress of Oakland's industry, which because we're one of the first cities to license all of these different activities, has the potential to really draw uh, people from surrounding areas and draw people from different parts of the state who want to set up shop in Oakland because they're able to get a license here before they can get a license elsewhere. So there's a concern that this is going to kind of cause a bottleneck while we're trying to seek out, train, and fund individuals that meet these criteria. I think there was also a concern about the, using the police beats as an indicator of individuals that have been harmed by the drug war. And as you said, you know, is this going to be just for people of a certain ethnicity? Are we targeting all poor people? And I think the question is, how do we design a policy that covers as many vulnerable individuals who really are worthy of this opportunity as possible that you can actually operationalize in an ordinance. And we don't really know the answer to that, to be honest. Um, you know, there aren't a whole bunch of other cities that have already done this that we can look at. There aren't evaluations and outcome reports from other cities' programs. So, you know, we're really clearing our own path here. Uh, so I, I understand the, the concerns and I understand the criticisms. I in no way think that that's a reason not to move forward and see if this works. Yeah, I think that does make a lot of sense just because Oakland is very obviously blazing a, a new trail here. And so uh, the only way to figure that out, uh, the, out the best way to do it is to just kind of move forward and see how it goes because uh, we can try to tinker with it uh uh, ahead of time until uh, uh, it's perfect, but that's probably never going to happen. Uh, but but the one thing that I do have the biggest uh, concern with, I guess, or, or just questions about is the uh, that 51% ownership, because I have heard a lot from some other folks in the industry thinking uh, that obviously this is well-intentioned, but maybe not the best way to do it. Um, and the reason being, and maybe we're coming from too much of kind of an East Coast mindset where it takes millions and millions of dollars to open up a dispensary here. Maybe it's lower barriers to entry on the, on the West Coast, but... Um, since it does take so much capital to open a business, even someone uh, like myself, who's uh, solidly, you know, middle class, has never been arrested for a conviction or anything, um, I would definitely not have the money to open up one of these. And if I wanted to, I'd have to get a bunch of investors that would uh, sell chunks of the company to, uh, and probably only have a minority stake in it, even if I'm the only one uh, who's actually doing all of the work for it. Um, and so, d does this make it harder for? Uh, those people who are, would be covered under this program to, to raise money to actually get open? Would it make sense to have it be allow for, for minority stakes in the business? Oh, no, I think that you, you make excellent points. And, you know, one of the things we are going to get now that we're going to be licensing so many different categories of business is mm -hmm. the cost of the license is going to be greatly reduced. Um, oh, so okay. that's one thing we're going to see across the board. Something else that we're going to see is that the city has agreed to allow multiple license holders to, obtain, uh, uh, to occupy the same physical space. So similar to like a beauty shop model where someone owns the building, but then mm. they rent out the individual stalls mm. to different licensed beauticians, they would be able to do something like that. So you could get together with five different small businesses and then find some, you know, you're all own your business, you know, more than 50 percent. Mm you find someone that has the capital for the building and then you rent that from them. 
Um, and then additionally, mm, okay. we are allowing uh, home-based edible businesses. So if you have your kitchen certified under the California Homemade Food Act, then you'll also be able to make cannabis-infused edibles in your home. And so this will be helpful for people that can't afford a commercial space and need to make things in their home kitchens. We're also hopeful there's a bill that just passed the assembly in California to allow for cottage cultivation as well. So for mm -hmm. individuals to cultivate a small amount of cannabis for commercial purposes in a residential area if they pass all the inspections oh, wow. and things like that. So I think that mm -hmm. if Oakland continues to look at those programs at the same time as trying to ensure that there's an even number of uh, entrepreneurs coming from the impacted areas as they foster uh, business ownership through reduction in barriers, then mm -hmm. I think it mm -hmm. may work. Um, you know, this idea of, of capital and outside investment, I think one of the things the city of Oakland is concerned about is that because we are the first to go through this licensing process of any other large urban area in California, that you're going to have a lot of money coming from other states, coming from other parts mm -hmm. of California, um, and people that aren't from Oakland, people that don't understand Oakland coming in and setting up shop here. And I think that while they want to see the industry expand, they want to see it expand within our borders of the city. And they feel that one way to do that is to anchor each business to an Oakland resident. Um, now, again, mm -hmm. if we try this for six months and we see that we have a backload of hundreds of applications from people that don't fit this criteria and only like five from people that do fit this criteria, the city's going to have to make a decision. They want to really push forward mm -hmm. with this program, knowing that it's really going to stifle the amount of industry they're able to bring in and therefore the amount of tax revenue they bring in. Or are they going to say, okay, you know what, maybe we need to tweak this a little bit. Maybe we need to say they're a 25% owner, or maybe we need to say that 25% of the licenses need to go to these folks. I mean, what the city really needs to be doing is establishing mentorship programs, scholarship programs, and training programs for these individuals that they want to be business owners. Because mm -hmm. these folks are going to need college training, they're going to need business plans, they're going to need all of these things that they may not have experience doing. And the city can't just say, well, when you have those things, here's your license waiting for you. They really have to facilitate that process. Um, those and on a, and really, that's a great list of of programs that the city can um, implement in order to help these businesses um, establish themselves in the industry other than uh, just setting aside a certain number of licenses. Like you said, the training and education and assistance with business plans that they will need but may not have the background um, in already. You mentioned um, at the beginning of our discussion that there's this law in California uh, prohibiting the specific mention of women or minorities um, being given advantage in employment or licensing like this. Um, is that, if that law were not in place, is that something that cities should consider or is something like um, removing barriers to entry, uh, like we've talked about, like the cottage uh, industry licenses, better overall for giving communities of color or other people who have been disproportionately harmed by the war on marijuana, um, you know, entry into this industry? Well, I think it's both. I think it has to come from both directions. I think that we have to recognize that individuals who have not had the same opportunities are lacking in the structure um, and information and education that they need to take advantage of any priority we may give them. So I think that, you know, you both have to reduce barriers and give as many people the opportunity to participate as possible. But at the same time, we want to be mindful when there's only a few number of licenses to be had. Traditionally, those licenses would go to white men who have the most money. And so if we want to break that pattern, then we really have to be mindful of how we distribute the licenses. So, you know, I'll give an example. Recently in Berkeley, they were giving licenses for a new dispensary 
they've had three forever and they decided to uh, expand and establish a fourth. And it was, as you can imagine, extremely competitive uh, for this license. And one of the groups that was going for the license was the owners of Amoeba Records, which is, you know, a very Mm -hmm. well-known record company with, you know, stores all over the state. And, you know, these guys are are Mm -hmm. business staples in Berkeley and they didn't get the the contract, the the uh, applica- the, the license. Instead, it went to Sue Simon Taylor, who is an African American woman in her sixties, who is a former Catholic school principal, and mm-hmm. wanted to open a dispensary with her son uh, to help older adults. And I think that you know the city could have gone the way of any other city in America and said, well, here we're going to give it to these businessmen who have been paying taxes to our city forever, and you know we know that they're going to make a lot of money for the city. Um, but they didn't. They said, you know, we need to be mindful about who deserves to have this business. And I think that that is a very good way to go. And I would encourage cities to do that. But at the same time, they have to recognize that you have to lower the barriers or people aren't even going to be able to climb in the boat that you're sending for them. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really great way to put it. And so as far as talking about some other, I suppose, you know, options for ways to to right the wrongs of the war on drugs, I I do agree that ownership, uh, like in in this licensing scheme, is uh, incredibly important just because that's kind of the way that people build assets and build wealth over time um, and and not being able to to get those assets uh, really does have really very long-term effects. Um, But as far as ones that are... uh, more widespread um because this uh i know that there are going to be multiple licenses in oakland it sounds like there's going to be kind of a lot of them with this cottage industry but there's still you know the vast majority of people even if they had a marijuana arrest at some point in their lives don't uh, really have too much interest in, in getting involved in say the cannabis industry and have some other job or or something else going on and um what what about those people and, and what do you think are some of the best ways to uh to uh have a more far-reaching righting the wrongs of the war on drugs something that i've thought about in the past is some kind of essentially you know reimbursement for people with a marijuana arrest or a marijuana conviction at the very least whatever their legal fees were for that uh but if or reimbursing fines or things like that what, what do you have any ideas for things more on, on the the broader scale uh, sure. Well, when we look at um, the adult use initiative in California that voters are going to consider in November. It does allow individuals to get records expunged, uh, to get off of probation mm-hmm. or parole, to get out of jail if what they're in there for is no longer a, a punishable offense. Um, so, you know, the, the first step is trying to help pe- clear people's names and ensure that, you know, the, what has happened to them is not a barrier to accessing opportunity in the future. Um, But then I think the question becomes, are we trying to give a man a fish or teach a man to fish? Mm -hmm. And my concern Mm -hmm. is that just by hand, you know, here's a hundred bucks for you. Here's a hundred bucks for you. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, we feel good, right? We're like, oh yeah, we totally gave reparations. And, you know, meanwhile, that person's like $10,000 in debt. Um, And they don't have a college education because, you know, they had to work. And, you know, I mean, just like all the things, it's, it's almost like, I just I wonder if it's putting like a Band-Aid on like a gaping wound. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think instead we are mindful about the revenue from the cannabis industry. You know, that this industry is generating billions and billions of dollars. It's generating tax. I mean, it's just generating money like it's just spitting money. So where's this money going to go? And of course, you know, in Colorado, we have school construction. In California, we have a whole set of things earmarked, including reinvestment in communities that have been most impacted by the drug war. But I think we need to encourage other states that legalize to not only earmark revenue for these types of programs that are going to help communities that have been most impacted, but we also encourage the cannabis industry to become philanthropists for this cause and to, you know, not only employ people that have been formerly incarcerated, but people that aren't even interested in getting involved in the cannabis industry. You know, more cannabis businesses should be supporting college scholarships, should be supporting social Mm -hmm. service and public health programs and other types of community reinvestment. I mean, that's the way we really change the landscape of the damage that's been done by the war on drugs. I don't think 
it's giving someone a few hundred dollars for their trouble. I think it's giving them a new community center. It's giving them access to health care. It's giving them employment training, things that they never had access to before so that they become self-sufficient and then reducing and removing the barriers to success for them by banning the box, by having drug tests for cannabis no longer admissible. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we can do to destigmatize cannabis use that will end up impacting those who are most likely to be targeted. Um, so yeah, to turn back to the Oakland ordinance specifically, um, where are we in the process? Has this been fully approved by the council or are we still taking public comments? Um, have some of the issues that, um, activist groups raised been addressed or are we just kind of looking to pass what, uh, the city council approved the first go around and see how that works out? Well, there were some things that were changed from the first. So what happened was is that public safety had made the proposed amendments, and then the council had a first reading, and then the council had a second reading, which they passed it. Um, so it has been passed. One of the kind of compromise angles was that they are going to offer tax incentives for businesses that employ people who are formerly incarcerated. One of the things that the uh, alternative groups were asking for was instead of, you know, having this, oh, we're going to have 50% from this uh, area, geographic area, was that they wanted financial incentives for people that were going to help those who have been incarcerated get into the industry. Um, so that is in there. Um, but, you know, like I said, this isn't set in stone. I mean, it's an ordinance, but it can be changed. And I think it's going to be really important that we take a lot of time and energy in evaluating the implementation and seeing what the outcomes are and then be ready to come back to the table if this isn't working. Um, you know, at the very beginning of the ordinance, it has, you know, kind of all the whereas, whereas, whereas. And, um, mm -hmm. and it says in here... Um, whereas communities of color have been negatively, negatively and disproportionately impacted by disparate enforcement of cannabis laws. And I think that's really what we're all getting down to. And so mm -hmm. we, we all agree that that's a truth. And we're trying to figure out the best way to address that creatively through this new industry. So I'm confident that we will be able to do it. And I'm confident we're going to create an, a model that can be used elsewhere. I would love to see this model be used in places like Baltimore and Detroit and Philadelphia, um, where they also have issues with disparate policing. Um, so I'm, I'm really hopeful that Oakland is setting a standard here. Yeah, I, I love, I'm, I'm so glad that you guys are pioneering this pathway and this, um, you know this discussion, this con this this program for other municipalities to consider. Um, one of the challenges of writing new policy, right, is always that um, you can both be overbroad and under inclusive at the same time. For example, I could totally see, um, you know, someone living in Oakland who may have been, um, you know, negatively affected by the drug war, who isn't necessarily in one of these jurisdictions, um, feeling like oh, they should be you know, that they're being left out of the program um, or maybe someone who did grow up in one of those areas but moved away um, and now wants to return to set up a business in their home town. Um, but I think these are definitely steps in the right or or even someone who may have been targeted uh, because of their race and for marijuana related activities but may have been charged with a non-marijuana crime, right? Like we know that um, law enforcement sometimes goes after you for loitering or um, I, I can't think of anything, you know, but like not not the marijuana charge itself. Right? Of what, what the ordinance says, we'll be able to uh -huh. think of a million examples yeah. of like people that should get it that aren't included. Like I don't think we'll ever come up with something where we're, we, we can't think of an example of somebody where it's like, well, but what about somebody who does this? And we're all like, well, yeah, they should be included, but they're not. Um, so I don't think that we'll be able to do that. Um, you know, given that California does not allow you to, to make decisions, you know, based on any identifying characteristics, um, you know, I think that the best we can end up doing is that what they may do is adopt an application system where there's kind of a box there, right? And you're able to put in there 
hey, I just want you to know this about me. You know, I, I grew up in East Oakland. Um, you know, I moved, mm -hmm. I went to college when I was 18. I was the first one in my family to go to college. You know, um, my brother's been incarcerated for 20 years and now I want to come back and, you know, open this up and that there'll be an opportunity to make that explanation. And I'm not I'm sure there won't be. We haven't designed the applications yet. So it's absolutely possible that we could advocate as the commission for some space on there to stake your story, even if you don't qualify on the face of it for one of these programs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I, I I think is done really well in certain jurisdictions, just like in Berkeley, like you were mentioning with uh, with the Taylors, um, because it was reviewing these on a case by case basis. Um, and so they really could actually listen and great and basically rate every group's story against each other and see who, who they thought would be the best fit for the city. But I do recognize the need to figure out some more kind of impartial or just basically expedited ways to do that um, when you're giving out a, a much larger number of licenses rather than one. And it is very nice to be able to do that pretty quickly rather than uh, having the application process drawn out for, you know, a year or so. And so while, while this isn't perfect, and you've mentioned this, and that we will really just need to be uh, uh, attempting to improve it as, as things go on, um, and that we should really just move forward and, and tweak it as we go, um, are there, I, I've seen a couple articles with people talking about these changes, and I know this is still very new, but are there any items that you already think uh, will need to be tweaked, or is there anything on the horizon that is kind of a, a consensus that anything will be changed before this is this is launched well i think what we're going to have to see is what who's applying i think you know we'll design mm -hmm. the applications we'll put them out there and we'll see what we're getting back and if we're getting back like i said 30 applications a day for people that don't fit this criteria and only one a week from people that do you know, we're going to have to think what we need to do. And maybe we need to recruit, you know, maybe we need to go into community meetings in some of these areas and say, hey, have you ever thought about having a business? I mean, I don't know yet, um, but mm -hmm. we just have to see, you know, it could be that we don't need to. I mean, it could be that we get plenty of, of applications from people in these affected areas. Um, you know, I just think that we don't know because we really have nothing to base it on. Yeah, that makes sense. And so that brings us to the end of our discussion. Thank you so much, Amanda, for joining us. We do always wrap up our roundtable discussions with a call to action, since educating people is pretty useless if we're not also using that knowledge to improve our communities and make the world a better place. So if you could have our listeners do one action right now, what would you ask them to do? If I could ask them to do one action, I would ask them to go to www legalizeca2016.com and learn more about the campaign to legalize adult use marijuana in California. Awesome. That's legalizeca2016.com. Uh, thank you so much again for coming on and speaking with us today. This has been Amanda Ryman of the Drug Policy Alliance. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Amanda. Sure thing. Anytime. Thanks for listening to episode 47 of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Rochelle Young and me, Sam Tracy. The show is produced by Tyler Williams, and Sarah Merrigan is our engagement director. We'd also like to thank Amanda Ryman once again for joining us for the discussion. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please send us a message on Facebook or Twitter, or you can email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, thisweekindrugs.org, for more information about the show, including links to our guests, news stories, and events. And if you're listening to this podcast on iTunes and like what you hear, please give us a rating and write a quick review. I know that we say this every week, but it is really important since it helps us float to the top of the charts so that other people will find us and start listening. I just checked and we've actually already got 10 reviews and a 5-star rating, so many, many thanks to those who have already reviewed us. And if you haven't yet, we'd really appreciate a nice rating if you think we've earned it. Finally, if you really enjoy our podcast and get a lot of value from it and would like to support our work financially, please check out our Patreon page, which is linked to on our website. This allows you to commit to a small monthly contribution that helps defray some of our web hosting fees. And so that's all for episode 47, so please remember to stay sensible, and we'll see you next week. Our outro song is Home by Mariah Rogers.
No, no. 